and welcome to Women Who Protect, a monthly series as part of the Ontic Protective Intelligence podcast. In a profession largely dominated by men, we spotlight women working in a wide range of positions within security, protection, and law enforcement. We will hear their stories, discuss their accomplishments, and also seek their advice for women and girls who might be interested in a career in protection or security. I'm Dr. Marisa Randazzo with Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. After nearly three decades of experience working in security and protection, as the chief research psychologist at the U.S. Secret Service, and then in the private sector providing security guidance to corporations, educational institutions, and high-profile individuals, I know firsthand the immense value that women bring to this field. And I know the challenges that we face. I look forward to sharing with you the stories of women who protect and hope they inspire other women and girls to consider joining our ranks. Now, on to the podcast. Melissa Muir has been a human resources professional in the U.S. courts for 25 years, including the federal court in the state of Washington. She currently serves as the HR director for her hometown of Shoreline, Washington, just north of Seattle. Informed by threat management principles, Melissa is passionate about bridging the gap between security and human resources to improve the safety and health of our organizations. Melissa is the past president of the Northwest Chapter of the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals and serves on the National Sponsorship Committee. Melissa has also served as an instructor at the Gavin DeBecker and Associates Advanced Threat Academy with Gabby Thompson, an Ontic Protective Intelligence pioneer. Melissa, welcome to Women Who Protect. It's a pleasure to have you here with us. Sure, Marisa, and thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Um, I am a full-time HR director. I spent more than 20 years with the federal courts, and now I work at the local government level. I work closely with security in my day job, uh, and I also invest a lot of my time working with security outside, talking about the really cool things that HR does. And for me, the the moment where I went from never talking to security to partnering with them was about a decade ago. Um, I was involuntarily separating an employee. I'll talk about this probably later that I, I use the term saying goodbye rather than termination. Um, and in order to kind of be respectful and do it in a way I thought was the most dignified. I met this employee after hours. I, of course, did not tell security. They would just come in and blow things up um, and did it in a way that I thought was respectful, including collecting our district firearms instructors gun safe. And just before that, when security got wind of what I was about to do in essentially a dark alley on the weekend, um, they invited me to join the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals, and a meeting that was focused on prevention and some of the security tips that we could use. And for me, it was eye-opening. I had never worked with security, even though we had full-time security in sight, and had not appreciated until we really started working together all the tremendous things that would come out of our partnership. So by day, I'm an HR professional. And throughout the day, and as many chances as I get, I talk to security folks about how we can be a force multiplier for making our workplaces safer. Oh, that's fantastic. And and you are 
um, an HR professional for a municipal court. Is that correct? Um, a variety. I worked with the federal courts in the Western District of Washington, Seattle and Tacoma, um, for more than 20 years. And then after I took early retirement, I went to work for the city of Seattle Municipal Court. And now I'm the HR director for the city of Shoreline, my hometown. I walk to work. Oh, how neat. As as <laughs> That's neat. And tell me a bit, I'd, for our listeners, I'd love for you to describe what this field of threat assessment is. So you're working as an HR professional. You discovered threat assessment because of a particular situation where you were trying to say goodbye to an employee in a way that was safe uh, and discovered this field of threat assessment. So share with our listeners what the field is and in your words and, and what your what your experience is and your role is in that field. Sure. I could talk about this for days. Let me give a, a short version. And, and I'll start this with this. Um, security is a team sport. And I think threat assessment is where that really shows up. Uh, you know, we use the term multidisciplinary team, which sounds really kind of dry. It means we're all partnering together, whether it's HR, whether it's legal, whether it's security, whether it's behavioral health. Um, and all the parts we put together are really, I think, our strongest tool for prevention. So when I look at and I'm telling somebody that I've just met, you know, what behavioral threat assessment is. I talk about it as a tool for preventing acts of targeted violence. Um, Calvin and Weston, way back, uh, probably 20 years ago now, I think, did talked about the pathway to violence. Uh, when someone has a grievance, uh, when somebody has a fantasy or picture of harming someone, and as they go up and hopefully can also come down that path all the way to an attack, it's a reminder that people do not just snap, that they don't do things without often planning things in advance, telling others before. People often know um, in the workplace, there's some great research that shows that coworkers, more than a third of the time, have some insight into what's happening with an employee who's struggling uh, and may later commit some harm that they share information, they tell coworkers, they let people know. So if we can take that information and we can create spaces that are trusting and secure and share information in a professional and organized fashion, we can prevent a lot of the acts that we see. And HR, I think, is a really important but often underutilized and unrepresented portion of those teams. Well, and I'd love to hear um, a little bit more about your concept of security as a team sport. So we often think, you know, looking in an organization, there's a, an HR department or a people department, maybe there's employee assistance, sometimes there's separate security departments, uh, there's, um, you know, legal, all these different silos. And, and I'm hearing you say security is a team sport. And in my mind, I'm assuming that security is a lowercase there as opposed to the security department per se. But tell me more about what you mean by security is a team sport because it's such a great phrase. Sure. Um, and uh, yes, I do mean security with a small s, although it's kind of a superhero, huge small s. Um, and I will say this, a brilliant woman who protects recently asked me if the relationship between security and HR was doomed, and I uh, I have great hope. I think that's not true. What I what I see is we are working in silos a lot of times. Uh, I was just this week talking to a group of security practitioners, and there's the things they say about HR. 
shows up at the 11th hour, doesn't bring us in, doesn't see the things, department of no, all of these horrible things. And I was like, well, let me tell you my perception of you. And then we could do this all day. But when we sit down together, when we can incorporate safe practices in all of our professional worlds, then we all, uh, you know, we're force multipliers for security. And I'd be thrilled to give you an example or two if you'd humor me. Uh, yes, uh, please. Sure. So on the HR side, uh, here's an easy example. Um, virtually 100%, very high percentage of HR has detected deception in the application process. Because shocking, when we apply for a job, we put on our best light, right? Maybe it's not entirely accurate. Um, and yet more than half of HR doesn't even verify degrees or do some basic checks. Um, one in 10 identifies a red flag in an application and still hires them. And as I like to say, don't paint a red flag green. And once I started working more closely with the formal capital S security folks, some of the amazing things I learned about statement analysis, about interview techniques, about some of the things we could do at due diligence that are done in other, other forms of interviews, play, they play right into our hiring practices. We've immediately made them more secure, better just from the partnership that we have. And as I like to say, you know, we would worry a lot less about disgruntled former employees if we just didn't hire them in the first place. Excellent point. One of the things that you and I have talked about, and, and I, I do want to get back to your, uh, your um, wonderfully hidden reference just a moment ago about uh, someone, I think you referred to her as a brilliant threat assessment professional, but someone asking you if the, if the relationship between security and HR was doomed. And I do recall that I asked you that question a while ago. <laughs> um, but, but part of it is, I think, it, as, as I have worked in the field of, of security for several decades and worked sort of directly in security and then also outside of security consulting to organizations, trying to build this relationship between HR professionals and security professionals. I have heard the things that you have talked about just a moment ago, which is around, hey, we, we don't know how to partner with them or HR professionals typically like to handle the situations with problematic or troubled employees or employees in crisis on their own until it gets to the point where, where there may be the potential for danger. And then they call their, their security department colleagues at what security may feel like is the last minute. But I also know that you have, you've, you've given talks at, at uh, conferences of threat assessment professionals where you really talk about tips and strategies for building that relationship for security to become much more informed about what HR does and for HR to become more informed about what security does. And I would love to hear how you go about that. How do you do that directly? How do you advise other organizations to do it? Because it's such a, a great relationship that, that needs nurturing. And I trust you that it's not doomed. And I love that concept. But I'd love to hear about the, the specifics of how. How have you done this? How do you advise others to do that? Sure. Um, let me step back for a little bit. One of the things that I think about a lot, and it's one of my favorite quotes by Desmond Tutu, which is, there comes a point when we need to stop just pulling people out of the river and we need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. And I think HR is upstream, right? We're at that place 
where whether it's hiring or whether it's performance issues or whether it's um, <clears throat> things in a personal life that are thing, we, we see that often. We don't know often what to do with it. And we're a little hesitant uh, with HR, uh, with security, who sometimes can feel a little heavy handed in ours. And I think for me, here's the, the best tip I could get is go in and start a conversation independent of a particular situation or a crisis and bring curiosity rather than judgment. Come in and find out what are the stressors for HR? What's happening in HR's world? Where could we partner? Uh, one example we did at the court was we had a lot of new employees. And I think that's true in a lot of organizations here, especially as we're coming back from the pandemic. There's a lot of people that don't know each other, a lot of people that may have never been in the office. And it's hard to be connected, and that can be a real challenge. So we did a couple of simple things. We did some get-to-know-you games. We did trading cards. We did a variety of ways to really encourage people to get to know each other and know people's names and rewards. And one of the things that we heard almost immediately from our marshals was that the piggybacking, people letting in strangers in secure space, dropped dramatically because we were getting to know each other. We were stopping and we had these incentives to meet people and introduce ourselves. So when security came in and HR and we talked together about how we could do some connection games, security had some great ideas and we saw an immediate impact on our security posture. But it was because we were talking before we were letting someone go before I was feeling judged by security for not calling you sooner. And really somebody listening like, what's happening for you, HR, and how can I partner with you on your stressors? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's such a great and simple approach to sort of the, the getting to know you individually, getting to know what your department does. I think oftentimes in organizations, we know our own jobs. And we know the jobs within our departments and our roles. And I think there's an assumption that we should know what other people do, but we often don't. And there can be that hesitancy to even ask, right? To, to even ask, okay, what is it that you do? <laughs> and um, especially if, we're, if we need someone's help at some point. With the hiring we're doing, with the turnover, with the onboarding, you know, we did an online Jeopardy game and uh, the security folks kept one column, right? So security for a thousand. And we turned it into a game break. Rather than talk about policies that are irrelevant, bring security in from day one so that that employee knows that we take it seriously and that you have a responsibility. But that was a partnership where we turned it into like, hey, could you be part of our onboarding games? Right? And, and set the tone right away that we work together to make us all safer. That's fantastic. And what I was going to add there is that... Um, in the work that my colleagues and I have done for years trying to build behavioral threat assessment teams within schools and school districts and, and colleges, as well as organizations, um, we have talked about the important relationship between local law enforcement and schools. And it sounds similar to trying to facilitate and foster relationship between security and HR in that you've got professionals who don't necessarily know each other, know what each other does, don't know that necessarily know each other individually or know their roles and responsibilities. And that what we've advised for the K-12 and higher ed levels for years is, hey, it can start with a cup of coffee. Just go introduce yourself, find a half an hour, 
sit down and and hear what each other does and get to know each other as individuals and that can start that can start collaboration but it's hard to collaborate if you are collaborating with someone you actually do not know or haven't had a chance to get to know um and and so it sounds like your approach to really fostering and facilitating this relationship between security and HR is that simple in a way, really a, a, a getting to know you approach first and foremost, and then building more of a, a formal collaboration or partnership from there? Absolutely. And again, I think what you're saying is absolutely transferable, right? Whether you're talking about security in HR or security in any other professional capacity, again, part of this important team thinks the same things. Another example, you know, is engagement. Come to me and share, right? Employee engagement is a big deal in HR. It's tied to retention. It's tied to profitability. It's tied to lots of important things. And we use that metric very carefully. What we don't talk about a lot is there's an incredible connection between employee engagement and security. And when my security friends shared that with me, I realized, oh, what an incredible opportunity where something that you care about and something I care about really dovetail. And what could we do together with this? Because you've helped me understand how something you care about feeds directly into my world. And I'll just give one example that uh, in healthcare, uh, in healthcare settings where nurses have higher levels of employee engagement that is the primary connection to mortality and complication rates. And to translate that, it means if I go to a hospital where the employees are engaged, I have a better chance of living, right? So what if I went into my emergency room and it's like, what's your employee engagement score before I check into this hospital, right? That that is something my security folks brought to me that was directly relevant. And I never would have known without that cup of coffee or conversation in a way that it isn't just getting to know each other, but understanding how our connections benefit each of us when we go back to our, to our silos. <laughs> what a wonderful example, because A, you had folks who were in security bringing you what sounds like a research-based, <laughs> you know, finding solution. Uh, and at the same time, also, it, it it shows directly how something that typically lives within HR, as, as I would see it as a non-HR professional, employee engagement, that's HR's responsibility, keeping our employees engaged, that's HR's responsibility, that that has, in the healthcare setting here, from the research you're just talking about, a direct link to security and safety for patients in, in that healthcare setting. What an incredible, powerful example of the importance of, of both roles, of, um, of HR, of security, um, in really helping to speak to that, that intangible that we hear about from time to time. We talk about security of the workplace and safety of the workplace, which is workplace climate. So employee engagement to me has often been tied to directly related, tangentially related to how safe a workplace feels in term, or, or what, how positive a workplace feels with, with workplace climate. So I'd love to get, get your thoughts on, you know, what is workplace climate? How is it related to employee engagement? And then how is it related to security as you see it? Oh, there's so inter 
inextricably linked. They're just so connected that it's phenomenal. And there's not a ton of data out there. What is there tends to be a little more on the insider threat side. There's just just bigger numbers there than, um, fortunately, than mass shootings. But um, uh, CERT uh, out of MIT has done some interesting research that I love that talks about there appears to be some balance between physical security and negative deterrence and positive incentive and that they're equally important. So for example, how many cameras you have, what type of monitoring system, uh, how you are tracking movement, you know, machines, et cetera, all on the physical security side. Balancing it against the three things they talk about are employee engagement, employee connection, and organizational support. Three things that are absolutely core to our, our culture, right? That if we are putting as much emphasis on engaging and connecting with employees and supporting them, especially when they're struggling, that that has an equal impact on the security of the organization as those physical or other security measures. And so I, I like to talk, if we took 1% of the 175 billion we invested in cybersecurity and invested it in training our managers and supervisors to be more effective communicators and deal with difficult situations better, how, how would we impact the security rubric right, in our organizations? I think they are absolutely critical and both are important and they're they're absolutely tied to the culture, both of retention and uh, positive culture, but also safe. So that link is is so important, and I want to emphasize this for those who are listening, because our our podcast is about women who protect, and and it is not just women working directly in law enforcement or an executive protection team or in a corporate security department, but what you are talking about right now is is directly applicable that the role you are playing within HR is is just as critical to looking at ways to protect the workforce as someone who is in a more traditional corporate security position, for example. Um, and and I really want to emphasize this that part of what we are aiming to share within this podcast generally is a whole broad range of ways that careers and women in those careers can help to protect the safety and the well-being as well of an organization and of individuals. And so your example highlights that just just beautifully. I appreciate hearing that. And I, I would just say this, right, as we're coming back into the workplace uh, from COVID and more people are coming in, there's a lot of stressors. We're seeing, you know, domestic violence is a, a really serious issue, right? And we think that as people are coming back in, that's when they may be leaving uh, relationships and and when that's going to be even more of a challenge. If we are training our HR people in how to support people who are in abusive relationships and what to do, that might be one of the best things we can do in this post-pandemic to ensure the safety of our workplaces. And it's something that HR isn't talking about. So for those who are not in HR, please go back. And share with your HR folks that this is an incredibly important opportunity to really keep our workplaces safe and support our employees. What are you seeing from an HR perspective and from a security perspective about employee behavior, risk to employees from domestic violence and from external threats, and then sort of 
employee perceptions of safety coming back in post COVID or quasi post COVID? Um, Cause I'm, I'm hearing some, some scary behavior out there. What are what are you hearing? Yeah. Um, I don't know what the technical term is. Mine is people are whack right now, right? People are <laughs> That's just... a clinical term. You can use that. <laughs> people are struggling, right? I mean, you look at the statistics on what's happening with teenage mental health and then remembering that many of our employees are parents of those teenagers that have gone through stuff, are struggling on their own. Um, for me, from an HR standpoint, I'm very concerned about a couple of things. One is that there are so many crises happening and so much frustration around policies one way or the other. I don't feel safe coming back. I resent you for making me get vaccinated, whatever it is, um, that my biggest fear is that we're missing signs because the baseline is so off right now that we're not sure what the baseline is for our employees. We're not sure what to measure. And there's so much volume of chatter and scary things happening in people's lives that are we going to miss the one that's really important? So I think we're seeing it at every level. Um, as people come back, that's ramping up the pressure. It's helping a little bit, at least for those who are grateful to be back around coworkers. That's been, I think, helpful and reassuring. But there are, some, there are people really struggling out there. And our managers, our leaders, our HR have been under constant strain. So they're not always bringing their best self either. And I think that's a really important point too. Um, I've seen this with organizations after a a violent incident, for example, something high profile or even just an individual act of violence or even even suicide in the workplace that oftentimes what we see is um, some impairment in leadership going forward. And it, it may be observable right away. Oftentimes I've seen it take kind of months to emerge that. Um, Leaders have been doing the best they ha- can, but 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 managers, supervisors, uh, you know, organizational leadership—they're human too, and and a, a violent event or some sort of traumatic incident can impact them as well. And um, and so, I've seen organizations face challenges, and I think we are seeing this now too with COVID and post COVID is that our leadership may be absolutely burned out and, and they may be impaired in their ability to fully lead in a way they could have pre-COVID. Um, and so I'm curious as to your experience in working with, have you had experience working with impaired leadership and, and any, any strategies or, or tips you may have for those listening and who may be in a similar position? If I had the answer... Uh, I would be on a beach somewhere right now. So I, I, <laughs> I, I, I want to acknowledge that this is huge. In, a, in my own organization, one out of two people is either new or in a new position since before the pandemic, yet only one out of five of our leadership has changed. And my leadership team viewed that as a positive. That's great stability. And I'm like, are you kidding? It means that while everybody is figuring out where they want to be and getting fresh start. Those managers and frontline supervisors are there every single day and they're not getting support. And they're often the ones who are translating policies that what they weren't a part of that are resented by people. Uh, They're the one fielding the toughest questions. They're the ones having the difficult goodbyes Um, and they're not okay. For me, at least in the short term, one of the things I do see that is helping is just creating as much space for them 
doing open forums. We used to have a pretty packed agenda for management meetings. A lot of it was around, here's the latest 75 policies that changed since <laughs> yesterday, right? So, um, And now we're kind of like, let's just have some open space, what's happening in your world. And sometimes just hearing what's happening in other departments, what people are struggling with, what successes have worked has been really valuable. So creating space, giving them space, um, not expecting them to be on, allowing them to share their resentment of the people making the decisions that they have to implement, um, and just really, really supporting them in as many ways as we can because they are they've been there every day since this, and we need to give them a break. They're not they're not they're not well. well they could be better anyway. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you a little about Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. In a world of safety, security, and protection, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That's why we created the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. The center is a trusted resource for those in the security, safety, and protection communities. We share strategies and best practices, insights on current and historical trends, and lessons learned through dialogue, discourse and alternative analysis for some of the industry's top practitioners. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center. That's ontic.co slash center. So let me turn now to a little bit about how you even got into this field. You're in HR. I'd love to hear how you got into that, but but especially I'd love a little more of the story behind how you got into the field of threat assessment in sort of working HR along with security to maintain safe workplaces. Sure. Um, let's see. If I was going to number this, I would say it was one ally, one challenger, and three or four really amazing women in threat that kind of shifted me and I think really influenced me. And the ally was back to that original difficult separation where I was introduced to the concept of threat assessment and threat management. And then shortly after kind of helping the Northwest chapter of ATAP do training. I went to the national conference and I'm sitting accidentally. I end up at dinner with all sorts of um, the old guard from ATAP. And let me just jump in here. ATAP is the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals and it's the U.S. branch of this. There is one in Canada, one in um, Asia and Australia, one in the European Union. Uh, So these are, for anyone interested, these are professional associations of people who are threat assessment practitioners or work in some role where they are serving on a threat assessment team or a workplace violence prevention team. And it is a phenomenal organization and they have a student component as well. So for anyone interested, um, we'll share some information right at the end of the podcast about how to join, but, but ATAP is sort of the premier professional association of, of people who work in the field that Melissa and I work in, in threat assessment. Thank you for that. I went straight to shortcuts, but ATAP, KTAP, ETAP, APATAP, that's amazing, <laughs> APATAP. Um, they're all amazing. So I'm sitting at dinner. I don't know who's who. I don't realize that these are the founders of ATAP, and they're talking, and I'm uh, quietly listening. 
And I hear one of them say with pretty strong language, you know, you shouldn't be in this organization, in this, this uh, community, if you aren't actively managing threats at least two thirds of your time. And of course, this is me, HR person who's handled one separation poorly, kind of sliding under the table, mm-hmm. feeling very, very small. <laughs> and so that was like, oh, this is not going well. And at that point, that was my challenge. And I will say, I will not name this person. I will just say that he and I continue a relationship. But over the years, the next summer, I was actively involved in the chapter. And I was like, hey, look, they let people like me in this group and play leadership roles. Eventually, our chapter in Northwest became larger than the chapter he'd founded. And I think did a lot to take the organization forward. And for me, that was not just like, I want to prove to you the next time we're at dinner that I belong at this table, so much as I want to show you what it looks like when we truly are partnering, right? Back to that security as a team sport. When we really are bringing, when HR has as much a voice at the table as law enforcement or private security or behavioral health, when we all have equal voices in that conversation, we are all better for it. So that for me was there. And then What's kept me in that is some really amazing women in security. And there have been really key moments throughout where just when I go through my imposter syndrome or wonder if I belong in the room, that they've been there to support me and champion me and include me and really kind of inspire me to keep going forward. It's been incredible. What advice would you have for a woman who's considering a career in security, a, a woman who's considering a, a, a you know career transition into more of a security field or, or working alongside security, as we've talked about here, or for a, a young woman or, or a girl even considering it. From your perspective, is this something you would encourage? And, and if so, do you have any advice? Oh my gosh, yes. Come join us. Come play. We will have so much fun and make such a difference. I would love to share a couple of examples and do do what you want with these. But for me, I think I learned from others and I want to do that same back. It's such an incredible field to be in. And um, just before the pandemic, I was in Australia with the Asia Pacific Threat Assessment Group speaking. And right after I spoke, uh, Gabby Thompson, who is an ONTIC pioneer, Mm -hmm. spoke and she was brilliant. And in the middle, my worst nightmare, a man raises his hand and asks a question and says something to this effect. Hey, what you're saying now contradicts what Melissa said earlier, which one of you is right. And I'm about to watch this amazing person who's dealt with stalkers for 20 years, has done some incredible stuff, destroy me in front of 150 people. And I'm just sitting there kind of on the edge of my seat. Ah. And And Gabby looks over at me and kind of smiles and turns back and says, Melissa and I are actually saying exactly the same thing. Let me show you how. And that gift to me and that inclusion and that welcoming made all the difference in the world for me. I can't tell you how many times I've thought back and thought, I want to make sure I'm that person for somebody else who's sitting on their chair feeling nervous or not sure if they belong, right? So just that small act of inclusion for me has been just a reminder of what we can all be for each other. And I would love to share examples with some of the 
younger women in security that have really inspired me, if you'll let me. Oh, yes, please. So this February, the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals held the first in-person conference in Florida uh, since before the pandemic. And people were pretty excited to be back together. There were about 600 people. And Michelle Calhoun, who's a workplace violence expert, spoke and was brilliant. And afterwards, I complimented her on how she brought the concept of dignity domino to life and did such a one. And she said, oh, that means so much coming from you because I have looked at you as a mentor. And I had no idea that anybody would view me that way. And that reminder, right? Like, find your mentors in, find your mentors out and be that person. Even if you don't know you are, you might be somebody else's view of what they want to do. That's incredible. And then I walk outside just a few minutes later and I'm taking a walk and I help two young women take a selfie. And one of them suddenly starts talking about my presentation. And I realized that she was Anna Grace Burnett, PhD, postdoc student at University of Virginia that just did really cool research, if that's okay to say, about mass stabbings um, and some really interesting work comparing mass stabbings and mass shootings. Not my topic, but fascinating stuff. And one of the things she commented on was I was wearing my pumpkin spice tights up on the stage and she commented that she had wondered about what to wear and her friend had tried to convince her not to wear all black. And the reason why she was going to wear all black was she was worried that she would not have credibility as a young student, female student, with the older law enforcement men in the audience. And her friend at the last second said, be yourself and be up there. You don't have to wear all black to be credible. And that idea that we are still worrying, right? I'm in my pumpkin spice. She's in her pop of color. And that we're still worrying about <laughs> whether we're wearing the right colors on stage to be okay with the men. But, to, but that's that support to each other. It's like, you go, girl, wear those colors. And then I spoke to my friend Gretchen Fredrich, who's a rock star in emergency management, and said, what advice do you have right, for how can people like me support people like you coming into this field or trying to establish your name in the field? And she said, you know, be visible and be your authentic self. Because when you're up there in pumpkin spice tights and we see you, we know we can be what we want to be too and what's possible and isn't the mold that we see with a lot of those case studies by our law enforcement partners. So just, I guess if I were simplifying, it'd be like, be yourself and find your allies. They're there and they want to help you. That is absolutely wonderful advice. And, and I'm also taking away from it, you know, find your mentors, find people to look up to, but, but also reach out and, and ask. It's always okay to reach out and ask for guidance. Hey, can I, can I talk to you for a 10-minute phone call? Tell me about your field. Tell me about your agency. Tell me about your job. I'm interested in getting into this field. And, and that um, I, I know so many women within different aspects of security and protection of law enforcement who want to do exactly what you're talking about. Encourage young women and girls to come join us and just like, hey, I'm happy to give a couple minutes of my day to talk with someone and tell them a little bit about what my previous job at the Secret Service was like, what my day-to-day -day is like now, what it's like to do security consulting and, and the people I know that might be interesting for them to talk with as well because there's so many different angles and dimensions to working in and with security. And, and I think that um, 
I think it's just a field that that girls and young women often overlook or we just don't it, it doesn't get recommended to us to even consider starting at a young age. And so uh, the more we can do to help encourage those behind us to come along and join us, I, I think we'll all be safer for it. I agree. And and I want to just echo that, right? I mean, anybody can call me. I'll talk to anybody. I'm so excited about this stuff. And it's, so, and it's such a cool place. Like literally every day you're making the world a better place, right? Like how many of us get to say that at the end of every day? But the people in this field, you know, I, I can name up, you know, Dr. Belante, Dr. Leida, Dr. Guy, you know, Rachel Soloff, Wendy Pitt, all of them, every single one of them will drop everything to help someone getting into this field. None of them uh, are shy about it, and they are all delighted to help and delighted to offer advice and delighted to introduce you to somebody, give you some ideas. Those connections are so valuable, and especially in women who protected insecurity. It's a small group. Join us. Help us make it bigger. Exactly. So one last question for you, because you mentioned briefly experiencing imposter syndrome. And I think this is something that doesn't get talked about enough. And it's something I believe strongly we all experience at, at different points of our career, in, including decades into it. So tell me a bit about what that means to you. And, and uh, I, I want to reassure some of our listeners that, that, that there are ways around it too. Yeah, I think because... HR is a very small voice in the threat and security ones. I'm often the only one or one of only a few and then throw in the gender stuff. So a lot of times, at least for me personally, I'll stand up there and I'll think they are rolling their eyes. They have no interest in listening to HR. They haven't, you know, and I, I will go through this whole thing in my head until I realize wait a second, wait a minute, all of us are feeling like that and we can all work through it. And for me, what has been the most valuable tool is I literally, if I'm in person, will ask a couple of people who I know are wonderful, safe, welcoming spaces, if they'll let me know where they're sitting so I can look to them when I'm out there in front of a scary group and see, uh, and just say, just remind me that you're there and we're connected and I can move on and get rid of that voice in my head. But anything we can do to just remind ourselves, like, we're awesome. We're amazing. We're doing great things. And we have our moments of insecurity. And, and we're all here to learn, too, that any presentation you are giving or meeting you are attending or presenting in can be an opportunity to learn as well. And, and that you don't have to know everything. It's always, always, always okay to ask questions. Uh, and, and we've heard in, in one of our previous podcasts about um, that asking a question, even if the person's response is sort of frustration, like, why do I have to explain this to you? It's actually a really important exercise for people who are so deeply embedded in their own field and expertise to have to be able to explain it to those who are not. And so that is a really important exercise that it, and I remind myself all the time, even to this day, if I have a question, even if I think everyone else already knows the answer, I would bet money that at least one other person in that room has a similar question or is also confused. And so I think it's so important for, for girls, for young women, for women in this field and others to always know, go ahead and ask. You are very likely not the only one who doesn't quite understand what, what's 
being discussed or what was just mentioned. Absolutely. And I think so many of these experts, they're experts for a reason because they're passionate about it. They love it. So when you ask a genuine question about it, they're often delighted to share because they're talking about something they've really invested a lot of time in. So they're delighted to share it with you. It's their, it's their place. And I would say that is especially true at the ATAP <laughs> conferences that you and I have attended. Yes. Well, some people very much enjoy talking about their work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, and Melissa, I just wanted to say that this has been an absolute pleasure. And, and um, I, I have, I always enjoyed talking with you. I learn something from you every time. And um, I too have looked to you as really the HR expert in the room in the field of threat assessment. And so I too have, have, have looked up to you for, for quite some time. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for sharing your stories, your examples, and your inspiration for all of our listeners. And just thank you for being part of Women Who Protect. Thank you. It's been an honor and a joy to talk with you for a while and to share with the women and girls coming into security. I appreciate it. Thank you. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's ontic.co slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Roll the Dice and was written by Mark Wallach. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcasts at ontic.co or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. Thanks for listening.